You're listening to the Kingdom Culture Church Podcast. To connect with us, hop on social media or go to kingdomculturechurch.com.au. Hey, good morning, Kingdom Culture Church. Good to be with you again this Sunday morning. I'm so happy to be here. I have been thinking a lot about this week and singing a lot about the goodness of God. I've been singing it over my life, over Heather's life, over my family's life, over your lives. And it is so good for us to remember he is good to me. He's good to you and he's good to me. We're looking at the book of Philippians um, and studying it through as a series. And I have personally been very moved by the content of Philippians 2, which is the uh, chapter that I'm looking at, the first half of the chapter that I'm looking at in part three of this series. Now, I know that we've had amazing content from Fred last week and this evening. We'll be having an amazing preach from Pastor Jesse Rose. Um, The great temptation in studying and preaching from Philippians is to spiritualize the content And while I really do love the breaking open of Scripture, I feel this is such an opportunity for us to look at these passages and let them speak for themselves. You know, some singers are accused of over-singing. You can think like Whitney Houston, Celine Dion. Over-singing simply means embellishing a song too much or sometimes to the point where the melody is no longer Recognizable, And I think, I feel sometimes as preachers, we can do this without thinking. We can spiritualize the contents of a scripture passage and miss a great life point that the Holy Spirit is wanting to emphasize to us. I believe the whole beauty of Philippians is the simplicity of the message that really doesn't need a squirt, if you like, of spiritual Heinz tomato sauce to lift the meal. It is what it is. It speaks to us. I think the Holy Spirit wants to take us uh, on a journey of a fresh love and appreciation for the profound and simple message that Paul had for the Philippians. So this morning, I'm going to systematically teach rather than preach, although it's a a lot easier for me to get into preaching in some way. But um, I want to do this... Um, So my desire really is to keep, in teaching, is to keep the message simple, that the blade of of the sword is kept sharp, and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts as we read and apply the word together. So we're just going to pray before I read the word of God. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you your word is light. We thank you that it's, when it speaks to us, when you speak to us, Holy Spirit, it comes alive. We pray that you will bless this word to us, to your people now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So reading Philippians 2 verse 1 to 11 from the message. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ... If his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think of so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. 
When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and he took on the status of a slave and became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. goes on to say, because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honoured him far beyond anyone or anything ever. So that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honour of God the Father. You know, just reading that scripture excites my heart this morning because it tells of a story of Jesus and what he was prepared to do to redeem you and I. Now, in this part of the letter to the Philippians, we find Paul addressing the culture of relationships. He addresses the culture, not from a worldview perspective, but from a godly, heavenly perspective. He challenges and places the focus firmly back on how can I be a friend to people, to, to my brothers and sisters, that loves, cares, challenges, and platforms others well. And then in this opening statement of chapter 2, he says, really, you've been following and learning about Christ for a while now, and this is all commendable, but there must be some application in your life for the things you are learning. Learning for the sake of learning is nothing, but learning to actually live a changed life is powerful under the power of the Holy Spirit. See, learning without application, with, sorry, learning without application is seed that has fallen onto unprepared soil. Paul goes on to say, the love that Christ has lavished on you is not satisfied until it's made a difference in your life and has become a primary source of your motivation and actions. He says, if you take seriously what it means to be in intimate fellowship together, koinonia, which we touched on last week, koinonia is that concept of fellowship, not just having a cup of tea and a chat. This is actually getting in each other's lives. It's not being weird, but it's actually, the, the whole picture was, they used this for Siamese twins, where Siamese twins share the same blood. So that, in Siamese twins, your health is my health. What you eat affects me. What you abuse abuses me. So he brings a whole new perspective to the body of Christ that we are actually interdependent of each other. Then he says, follow Christ's example. He's saying, do me a favor, realize this. Disciples learn from their master. He says, disciples act like their master. He says, disciples disciple like their master or he really isn't their master. He doesn't stop there, though. Paul is the master of not only driving a point home, but detailing what following and learning from Christ entails and looks like. So he goes on. Let me be super clear. One, agree with each other, love each other, 
be deep-spirited friends. This means to have a, a deep desire to live with, in unity and have a common goal. You know, the, the Greek word for, for agree is actually talks about breath, breathing a breath of life, literally. And what he's saying is you, you guys need to realize that you all breathe the same oxygen together. So if you pollute it with your hard-hearted opinions, if I pollute it with my noxious fumes of doctrine, we all suffer because we all share the same air. So he's saying you've got to learn to get along. Agreeable is the word he uses. That means to be accommodating. Think about the word accommodate. It means to be able to live together peacefully, to accommodate, to live in the same accommodation. Being agreeable may mean to live above and beyond the need to be right. Agreeable can mean living above and beyond the need, my personal need to be right. Then he says, number two, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't exploit situations. Don't exploit people. Don't exploit the gospel in order to get what you want. This is powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. He's saying give others the advantage that you would normally reserve for yourself. Manners are something that we don't really think about a lot. Maybe it's old-fashioned. I actually, I just want to bring a, a point here. I don't think it's my own personal opinion. I think manners are actually hugely important uh, in the way that we deal with each other in the body of Christ, in the world, not just in, in the church, but wherever we go. You know, maybe you're standing at the water cooler. It's cool to say to somebody, hey, after you, you help yourself first. You go before me. That's the, and that is the, the power of the gospel, you before me. Jesus was all about you before me. Maybe, hey, you're sitting down and you've got a comfortable chair and it doesn't have to be an older person. It could be an, a, an older woman, an old man, a younger man. Hey, have my seat. You be comfortable. Wanting somebody else's comfort over my comfort, I believe that's heart of the gospel. You know, it's not recorded if Jesus said please and thank you in the Bible, not at all, but he lived as somebody with a heart of gratitude and he has a history of noticing the unnoticeable, the unnoticed ones. You know, I think we can safely assume that, Je that Jesus never left people feeling uh, unnoticed and used. He left them feeling filled up and noticed. And I think that's a great thing. So I advocate Take it from me. Let's use our manners because it's in the small kindnesses that actually life is made so much sweeter. He goes on, Paul, don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. You know, maybe it's like seeing somebody at the side of the motorway that's got a flat tire. Are you going to stop and help them or are you going to rush on to your appointment? Um, you know, we talk about stopping for the one. I'm not even going to uh, elaborate on that so much because we do know about it. But do you stop? Do you lend a helping hand? Or are you so caught up in your world that it's you first, others after? So in summing up, he says, agree, love, live in unity, live in peace, put others first, put yourself last, live devoid of ambition, lend a helping hand. Now, this is great. Serving others, living in unity, peacefully, devoid of personal ambition, helping hand, as we've said, but it is all just wishes and hope-sos and dreams without the how do we do this? How do we live together in unity? It is so important that we know how to do this. And he doesn't leave us wanting in this. He actually says, 
let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. This mind is the key to living in unity. What he's saying is, think the same way as Christ did and let this thinking in this brain box influence your speech and your actions. He breaks down exactly what it means to have this mind so that we're not left in any doubt. Paul doesn't do, we need unity, just go and do it. He gives seven clear steps. And I want to just outline these. Because there were seven clear steps from the throne where he came from to the cross. It was a coming from high to going down low. Number one, it says he made himself of no reputation. That word reputation means he emptied himself out. Emptied himself out. It moves me when I read this because this small yet vital phrase is actually one of the cornerstones of our doctrine. That Jesus was fully God, yet fully man. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For there is complete fullness of the deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in human form. He is the complete fullness of the deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, living in human form. So he wasn't emptied out, though, of his nature of God, the nature of God. He wasn't emptied out of the nature of God. He was emptied of his privileges. He remained 100% divine, 100% human. He was fully both. But what did he leave? Scripture's very clear. He left his glory and his majesty behind. He left his omnipresence behind, his ability to be in more than one place at one time. Jesus could only be in one place at one time. He left his omniscience behind. Omniscience is a big word for knowing, the ability to know everything. Jesus didn't know everything. He said, only the Father knows the day of my return. Jesus was surprised. A surprise is not a surprise if you know it's going to happen. He left his omnipotence behind. That word means to have unlimited power. He could only do miracles after the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. So he emptied himself of his privileges, but not the nature of God. So to put it another way, I may give up all the privileges of I have, my home, my car, my income, but I would still be 100% Rob Porter. So Jesus emptied himself of his equality with God. He didn't empty himself of God. Now that word, reputation, that is used there is what people believe about you. Now, we use reputation a lot. It's it's what people believe about you, but character is who God knows you to be. Jesus emptied himself. He chose assignment over reputation. Just want to repeat that because that is something I really feel like the Holy Spirit is emphasizing this morning. He chose assignment over reputation. The challenge for us is, will we do the same? You see, to live empty of selfish ambition, the motivation to get ahead at any price, to live empty of comparison, to live empty of reputation, the need to promote myself, can I do that? You see, it says Jesus made himself of no reputation. That tells me something. It was a choice. And actually, all of these things we're going to look at are to do with choices. You know, one of the subtlest threats, I believe, to living the Christian life is the ability to build a reputation on social media or podcasts or online that is, that is, and that is to be more interested about our public image than what God says about you and who he knows you to be. 
I love what Bill Johnson says, you know, when he's preached a great word, you know, people can come up to you and go, oh, that was a great word, Pastor Rob or whoever. And, you know, Bill Johnson, he always takes the time. And I, I take the time actually to go back and, to God and, and I, I give it back to him like an offering. And I say, thank you, God. It is all for you. You know, I've never been omnipotent. I've never been omnipresent. I've never been omniscient. I don't know what it is to give up all of these privileges, but I can aim to live emptied of the privileges of my human condition. I can choose to live emptied of pride, emptied of selfishness, emptied of bitterness, emptied of jealousy, and filled with the Holy Spirit, and fruity with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So let's have a look at a few more choices Jesus made that are listed in this passage. I can't emphasize enough how much this has impacted me. Because in a world full of different generations, we've got baby boomers, we've got XYZs, we hear a lot about the impact of poor choices or about the impact of good choices. We don't hear nearly so much about the impact of selfless choices. It says he became a servant. He chose to become a servant. The word is doulos, one who gives himself up to another's will. The pivotal point of the gospel and the foundation for every person who would aspire to leadership is to be a servant leader. Many would aspire to be a servant leader. There's some people who serve to lead and there are some people who lead to be served. And we need to know the difference. And we need to get it right. It goes further than this. Jesus doesn't just say, if you want to be a great leader, learn to be a servant of all. What, sorry, he did, what he means by that is you, we need to simply learn how to be that. I can learn to be a servant leader. You can too. I can hear the Holy Spirit. I can learn from my mistakes. My heart is to do well. So is yours. He's saying, if you want to be great, that word is mega in the Greek. If you want to be great, learn to be a servant. I think Jesus already knew if true greatness comes from serving, those who devote themselves to serving start to lose their need to be great and known and the center of their universes. And this should guide our lifestyle, whether we are leaders or not. Third thing, he became human. He chose to become a human. Think about that. He embraced his humanity. It wasn't a half-hearted effort. It was a complete immersion in the salvation plan. He didn't huff and puff and roll his eyes and go, if I must. You know, it's so important for us to realize he chose to be human by full full immersion, by embracing being a human. You and I don't have a choice but to be human. But when we live a life of everything is unfair or we're a victim, we actually start to wish away the very God-given life that we have, the very God-given breath that we have, the very God-given future that is ours. You know, we don't embrace the fallen nature of man, but we can embrace the redeemed nature of man that we have become in Jesus, or the redeemed nature of woman that we have become in Jesus. Because it is by this very redemption that our true nature to create music, paint, write, books, explore, uh, learn, worship, love, and, and to be loved is expressed through embracing the redeemed nature of man that we have in Jesus. Jesus embraced his humanity to glorify God. We should do the same. Next thing he chose was he became vulnerable and was revealed as a man. He chose 
vulnerability. He could have chosen, think of this, he could have chosen to be born in any place, in any time. He could have chosen any standard of living. Imagine you could choose your parents, choose your lifestyle, the house you would live, the level of society you would live. Where would you choose? Jesus chose to be at the bottom of society, born to a poor couple in an in enemy-occupied country. But above all, he chose the status of a servant. Jesus chose to live unprotected and vulnerable. We live in a world that values self-protection, that values, places value on being strong, not on, on, on vulnerability, that celebrates a having it all together. But Jesus showed us a different value system, one that says, by my stripes you're made whole, and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He embraced his vulnerability and humanness. Then he says he humbled himself. He chose humility. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, not only chose the frailty of a human body with all its limitations, he could have chosen the personality and the exposure of a superstar, of a rock star, of a scientist, of a philosopher, but he chose humility and to live his life hidden until God revealed him. And that's a really important point. So many Christians trying to, are trying to be, deliver themselves, as it were, before uh, they've been fully formed. And it's so important that we stay under the hand of God. Jesus was ordinary. Now, that is not blasphemy, but I want you to hear me out. It says in Isaiah that there is nothing remarkable about him that we should even notice him. Jesus didn't act like a servant. He lived like a servant. It wasn't a persona. It wasn't a Sunday synagogue mask. It was his lifestyle. You know, we live as a part of a generation who want anything but ordinary. We believe we can have it all. And, you know, there's things that we need to have dreams and goals and all that. Not knocking that at all. But, you know, the truth is the world is full of ordinary Christians doing ordinary things in ordinary places consistently with joy. Last night, um, we heard um, Pastor Anna interviewing uh, James Casino. And he was talking about a a country where there were uh, 300,000 Christians who are constantly, if they're caught with a Bible, they're put in prison. And they are constantly being persecuted Ordinary people going about doing ordinary things. We live, have live in a church world where we, we have to be a somebody. But actually, God is saying you actually need to lower yourself so that you can be raised up. You know, Paul brings a balance to all of this. He says, Jesus was obedient till death. He chose obedience. This is a simple one. Obedience means attentively listening, having a trained ear. I think the art of listening is something that we have seen and will continue to see being restored to the church through soaking, through having times with God, by having journaling and all these things. The seventh thing was he died a criminal's death on the cross. I just want to dwell on this a little bit. He even chose to die on a cross, which was the punishment for the lowest scum of the earth. There's a reason that the cross is the symbol of Christianity and not the crown. Death is something we do everything we can to do to avoid and delay. Let's be honest. Death is still almost a social taboo. It's still not really talked about. You know, if I say to you, I am come and you might, that you might have life and have it more abundantly, I know that I'll get more shouts of hallelujah on the hallelujah-ometer than if I said to you, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross, follow me. For whoever shall lose, save his life shall lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. In fact, I don't know, but I can almost feel like a, a little bit of an awkward hush in every case you see living room as one of those tumbleweeds from the desert rolls through and there's this squawking vulture in the background. You know, as we speak, because we don't like the thought that actually the Christian walk costs. But we need to understand the context that Paul is writing about because we can sometimes feel overwhelmed by concepts of losing our life and so on. We need to consider that the reason the cross is central to the Christian faith is not just for Jesus. Paul was talking about, let this mind be in you. You have the mind of Christ. Now live a life dedicated to serving and the promotion of others. Let me say this, sometimes our needs, our validation, our opinions are just not front and central to the bigger picture. Ask any parent, ask any spouse, this can feel like death. There'll be times when you must have and what you want to say and must take a back seat. This can feel like death. There'll be times when things just don't work out for you, how you planned them or you hoped or you dreamed. This can feel like death. You know, T.D. Jakes has an amazing interview recently with Stephen Furtick, and he brings out that implicit in the desire for new wine, and we all go, amen, Lord, new wine. Implicit in the desire for new wine is the request for a fresh crushing. Crushing, though, is a stage. It was never meant to be a destination. I want to stir the pot a little bit here as we finish up. See, just maybe we have become a little bit allergic to suffering. But in Philippians 1, 29, we read it last week. For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And everyone said, move him on, Lord. You know, suffering can take many forms. It can be the situation we're in, in family, in marriage, and all these things. But sometimes we're so quick to move on from that. I've seen people that have come forward for prayer on the, on the altar. And, you know, I've watched them as they're crying. You know, we, when we see people who are joyful and we, we go, oh, they're having an experience with God. We see people who are sad and we actually think, oh, maybe they're not joyful. You know, maybe this isn't God. And I've seen people go in there and start breaking things off people's lives. Sometimes I think that we need to be sensitive and go, do you know what, maybe... The Holy Spirit is doing something in their life. Maybe he's bringing them to a point. Because death and, and the experience of suffering is not a comfortable thing. But sometimes we just want to move on. And, 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 and you know, maybe we, the best we can do to pray is, to, is to, how can I pray for this person? And the Holy Spirit might be saying, just back off, leave them to it. The problem is I'm a pastor. I feel people's pain. But maybe we should be strengthening people's hands to say, not my will but yours be done. Because dying to desires, dying to plans, dying to opinions is a lonely place. But maybe instead of praying away the very circumstance God is choosing to use to prune, sorry, we need to not pray away the very circumstance that God is choosing to prune. You know, the only thing between fruit and more fruit, according to John 15, is the knife. But scripture is clear, Christ was born to die. But the joy of this whole thing in finishing up is not that Christ was just born to die. He was born to be resurrected and bring us with him into power, into glory. So what I want to say in finishing up is 
Paul emphasises how you need to live together in unity. And the only way you're going to do that is to have the same mind of Christ in those seven steps I've outlaid. And when you do that, when you apply that into your life, you will find that the unity that we need for the church to be the church, for the church to fulfil its role as human, in humanity love to life, is for us to follow what Paul said, and we will live a blessed and unified life. Amen. God bless you, church.